0: Good evening. Thank you, Parker, Jamie, Jeff, everyone who served. I uh, hope everyone is doing well. At least I'm praying everyone is, is doing well. And, and no matter what, God's Word is always the best place to be. We're going to be in the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. That's going to be on page 930, if you're using the Red Pew Bible in front of you. Page 930. When everything is not going so well, we should be in God's word. And that kind of leads us into our lesson, our lesson this evening. And that's a one-point sermon I'm going to give it to you right off the bat. It's that God is good. And we might think, well, yeah, obviously God is good. I grew up knowing that, being told that my whole life. Why would I think anything different? And, of course, we read scriptures like Psalm 100, verse 5. I love this passage. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. That is a God, a good God, that we should all want to rally behind and get behind and follow, but in a dark world corrupted by sin and evil, it can be difficult to see that. And we need to be intentional with how we view God and his handiwork and his creation. Because if we're being honest, he is good. He is a good and great God. But before we can even get to that conclusion, we have to understand what good is. What is good? Is good only correlated with my happiness and mine, my own immediate pleasures. Maybe things are good in my view because, oh, they feel good or they only benefit me. And if we answer yes to all of those questions, well, then that definition of good might actually hurt other people. Even if my definition of good is I want to see everyone happy, it still has the potential to hurt others. We might even go even further and say, well, you know, instead we have a hard time finding what is good when everything is working out for the worst, when my, I have my job I don't like, my family I can't stand. We can, we can fall into this negative mindset very easily because we live in a world that makes it very hard to see the good when Satan brings down this fog that just seems to blind us and to keep us from moving forward. So unless we might think so, unless everything is perfect it's not good. It's not good. Unless my future is what I imagine to be, well, it's not good. It's no longer good. My wedding wasn't good because it rained. Where my drive wasn't good because I got a flat. Those are easy ones. I can get more serious to the point, well, my church family isn't even good because there's a few people I dislike or I don't agree with, and I don't agree with what everyone's doing. Or, you know, I'm not good because my child messed up to even... God's not good because I lost a, lost a loved one. Do you see the downward spiral that we can fall into if we fail to see the good, let alone what is good and define it? If we fail to see God and view Him as good... We have to view him as good. And Nahum here is one of those books that in first read can seem like it's filled with a lot of negativity. It can seem like it's a little dark because it's based around a lot of humans. as It involves a lot of humans. And so we can be reading it. We can have a hard time finding those verses that really makes us feel good. Those verses, you know what they are. We read them in Psalm 100. Those verses here. But Nahum is a prophet by God commanded to prophesy to God's people. And he's, he's prophesying about Nineveh. There's another prophet that does something very similar that really connects. His story connects with the book of Nahum. If you know that story, it is the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah is a little reluctant to do what God says when he says, go preach to Nineveh. And he says, nah, well, he eventually does. And we have to realize that Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, they are Gentiles. And in Jonah's story, against all odds, the Ninevites turn from their sin and they believe God. And that's what we see in Jonah chapter 3. In Jonah chapter 3, look at verses 5 and 10. It says, And the people of, the, of Nineveh believed what? Believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The book of Nahum takes place then now fast forward 150 years after that after the book of jonah and when god showed mercy to nineveh that's the difference between now and like the civil war that's enough time for some generations to pass and the desire of one generation that has for god to kind of shift that's enough time for one's definition of good to change and shift to things other than what comes from god Some things on the slides some pictures that's what nineveh might have looked like the syrian empire but that's what's happening to Nineveh. There's a shift happening. And Nineveh, we have to understand, is the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And what they have happened, they have turned back to their sinful ways, their violent ways. They've destroyed Israel. And Judah is what is left of God's people. In fact, God saved Judah in Second Chronicles 32. Why? Because God is good. He's a good God. But now the Assyrians or Nineveh become an example for God in the book of Nahum, the book of the people living in Judah, of what happens when we have a distorted view and understanding of what is good. And so from this lesson, we're going to set out to define what is good and how good God is. So if you look at Jonah 3 again, what did he say in verse 10? It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. There's that idea of turning. Turning implies that there's a choice to be made, and because there is a choice, that means one of those choices can be something other than sinful or evil. There can be actually a good choice. We have a choice, and if we do, then there's a difference in our decisions. There's a possibility in something other than evil, and there is something out there that looks different than evil. There's something that is the opposite of what we say is bad, and that is good. But as many of us know, evil is very attractive and is enticing, and it pulls us in. Paige, my wife, she made a great observation the other day where we were going into Market Street. We pulled into the parking lot, and we noticed, as many of you do, you approach that building, there's two doors. There's the entrance, and then over here you got the exit. And we go into this parking lot, and we realize very quickly how many people park on the side of the entrance? Everyone parks over by the entrance, over by the side of the building where the entrance is and not the exit. I got to thinking, why is that? Why is that the case? How many of us don't You know, think only in our immediate actions. We think only immediately. Like, I'm going into the store, and so I'm going to park, and then I'm going to go right into the entrance, and that's it. We don't think about how tired we're going to be walking through, picking the groceries, making the decisions, and then taking and hauling our groceries off, and we've parked over by the entrance. We don't strategize. We don't think ahead. And I'm not saying it's evil to go park over by the entrance. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is sin can act in a very similar way because it is convenient in that moment. And in that moment of conveniency, it can be difficult to see that good, especially today and in our nation with the nonstop violence after violence after violence. You know, Sandy Hook was a tragedy, as all of these are, and it's hard to see these things. They are horrible things. But Uvalde just seems to hit home after you have kids and you just see the evil for what it is. It's more clear. And it's hard to see those things. And Nahum here writes about this evil that we see humans do. Look at Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We read this and we think, I did. I thought of the shooting that happened, the evil in this world, the reminder of what other people can do to other people. It goes to show that we as humans can be so violent and we reap what we sow. And the Assyrian people here have been extremely violent. Yes, During the time of Jonah, they turned from their sins, but now they've chosen to go back to their violent ways, and they reap what they sow, and the Babylonians are at their door, and we see what will happen to them. They reap judgment. Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spear, spear hosts of slain, of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their bodies. Verse 7 Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And that last line in verse 7 there, that is what we want in our sin. We want comfort. We see there in verse 3 that we're all surprised to realize that, that comfort doesn't come. Comfort is often what we want in this life, but when we're looking in the wrong place and we have a distorted view of what is good, well, then it's never going to come. And we read this and we think, well, how can a good God allow this to happen? And when we say that, we've already made up in our mind what God should be. And we view the creator as the opposite of good. And we make him into this evil evil entity. And if we begin to think this way, God is evil because he doesn't mirror the things that we want. Or he doesn't mirror us and the things that we like. He doesn't fulfill our fantasies and what I wish God would be. And if we can think that God is evil... We're thinking that because we want some sort of heaven. We want some sort of utopia here on earth immediately and ironically, just like our sin, as conveniently as possible. And in our misunderstanding, we think, well, I don't want to go through the pain and suffering. A good God would get rid of that. And what we fail to realize is that in a world of good and evil, justice is so important and how prominent that is. You think of the shooter again, Eovaldi. Everyone believes how bad and heinous and evil that act is. And if we believe that, then we have to believe in justice. That is the big message in this book. That God is not only a good God, but he is a just God. And from the very beginning, when we had an understanding of what is right and wrong, we knew what is good and evil, humans understood some sort of justice And now we as humans fail to meet up to the demands of justice very often, but we try, we try, and that is why we need God, because he does perfectly what we fail to do all the time. And the Assyrians in this case and in this situation are that shooter. They are the evil, and they have done despicable evil, and in turn they will see, as we'll see we keep reading, they have actively rebelled against God. That's when justice comes in. And that's why the book of Nahum should be a comfort to God's people and why very wisely Nahum, inspired by the Spirit, starts off this book in chapter 1 looking at God's character. And so look at chapter 1. Look at verses 2 through 5. It says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The, wrathful the Lord takes vengeance on his enemies adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies we read that we stop Whoa, right there aha God is evil if I can't practice jealousy and vengefulness and wrath without sinning how could anything else let alone God and what we fail to realize is that many of us who practice such things in a human way cannot live up to what it talks about God doing in verse 3 where God is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel withers, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. How many of us, in our sin, can be both wrathful and slow to anger at the same time. None of us, only a good God, can practice these things and still be a just God. The writer here in verse 3 is quoting Exodus 34, verse 6. And he's not the only one to quote this, but he is the only one to quote Exodus in a different way than we usually see, the pattern. Let's go ahead and read Exodus 34, verse 6. It's a very profound statement here. Where it says the Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means, there it is again, clear the guilty, but He's quoting Exodus 34, verse 6. God is slow to anger. That is quoted eight other times throughout the Bible. And in every one of those passages, like we see on this screen, it says something about God's love and grace and compassion and forgiveness. But in the book of Nahum here, in, in verse 3, it starts off where God is slow to anger. And instead of talking about his abounding love, it replaces it with God is great in power. Verse 3 do you see what the scriptures are saying there? Do you see that? Nahum, he, he knows this passage. He knows what it says. It's equating God's love, God's grace, God's mercy with power. That there are power be- behind these things. There is power practicing these things. There is power in loving your enemies and forgiving those who have hurt you and showing mercy to those who... You should actually show hate to, but you don't. You show mercy. You're showing grace. There's power behind showing grace to those who don't deserve it and actually deserve your worst, but you show them grace instead. That is power. There is power behind these things. And too often we view them as weak because they don't give us the immediate results that we wish they would. And we realize very quickly in practicing these things that these qualities are good, and that there's power behind this goodness, and that there's power and goodness demonstrated by God and possessed by God. I love the imagery in verse 3 that says the clouds are the dust of his feet. It's amazing to go outside and view that and see his creation and say, wow, look how amazing God is. But think for a second, if the clouds are the dust of his feet, who are we made of actual dust we are nothing in comparison to god a god who verse 4 rebukes the sea does that sound familiar that sound like someone else we know let's turn to mark chapter 4 mark chapter 4 look at verses 22 look at jesus here not just what he does but look at what he says as well in mark chapter 4 verses 22 through 25 He's in the sea here with uh, his disciples on the boat. And we're going to start in verse 22. Mark 4, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, "'Let us go across to the other side of the lake.' So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and with a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger." And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and waters, and they obey him? The wind, the sea, the storm, that is like the evil that we experience in our in our lives. It's it's how the Assyrians word really to every nation. They lost their faith. They jumped out of the boat, if you will, and the same storm is coming for Judah if they don't keep their faith. That's the warning here. But faith is relying on a certain authority. And we hear that word authority, and we're scared of it. We don't like that word authority. We don't like that. But it's just representing where we place our trust. I can go and buy this package and eat this food because I trust the authority for example behind the stamp the FDA stamp. Authority should just represent power that we trust. And in our sinful ways what happens is we strive for power because we want to be the ultimate form of a power. We turn away from God and what we're doing is we're telling him I can battle this storm by myself I can do it alone I don't need you and what we fail to realize what we don't understand is that Jesus is in the boat that God is in the boat the disciples here are nervous they're worried at first they go to Jesus in that moment when they fear that storm that's the good thing they go to Jesus for help and Jesus amazingly miraculously because he is a good God stops that storm they went to Jesus for help. Now, God isn't always going to be there in our life to just calm that storm whenever it happens, but he is there with us. The God who can stop the storm is in the boat with us. We just have to choose who are we going to place our faith in? Who are we going to place our faith in? And what authority and power are we going to rely on? And then we go back to Nahum and look at chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. After talking about how great God is, and his power, and looking how the hills are are flattened and the clouds are the dust of his feet, what follows is verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. If we do not think God is good, and instead what we do is we view him as evil, we're telling him, we're telling even ourselves that we are the picture of good we're comparing ourselves to God, which we know we just learned we just can't do. Replacing God with something else. And if we do that, then we will never escape failure. Look at verse 11 again. We're out of Nineveh. There comes one who plots evil against the Lord. They call him a worthless counselor. In Hebrew, that could be a worthless planner, a military leader, a strategist. It doesn't matter what our plans or our plots are without God or against God. Verse 9, What are our plots? What are our plans? They are nothing. They are vain. What's better is if our plans and our counseling, verse 11, is embedded in God and who God is. It is worthless, a worthless counselor that plans against God. And it is a valuable counselor that follows God's plan. That follows God's plan. Think of your life now. And think of your life without Christ. Where would your value be? What good are you to yourself or the others if you find value only in yourself? Or what good are you if you find value in yourself on, and it comes from the back of other humans? Right? What we say is bad and evil we say is worthless, but what we say is good we value and what we need to understand is that only a good God can give us value worth living. That is the amazing thing. That is what we should praise God for. And notice in the verse here, in the midst of this very, dark, this very dark book, is a good verse, verse 7, that reminds us of where that value comes from. That the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Just like we read back in Mark 4, God is the stronghold. He's going to be the one that calms the storm. I love this book because it's so much like life. Even though it's very dark, this verse is a little light that reminds us that God is good. That he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows his people, and his people should actively be knowing him. And even though we're living in a world full of evil and trouble, and where people try to put that evil on themselves, we have to understand that God is good and will always be good. It's a simple concept, and yet a remarkable statement to think about that. And so we have to ask a question that follows. What is God to us? What is God to us? And in answering that question, anything that is good to us becomes a God. Anything that feels good, we will worship. Any person, place, thing, idea, any now, we will worship. And so is is porn your God? Are any other drugs your God? Are people your God? Is social media your God? Is your work your God? What is your God? Is your God your self-indulgence or the good God that saves your souls? Should be the God that loves us, that loves his people. And that's why we go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? And they, they eat of that fruit there because they were told that something was good other than what God said. They were told that knowing good and evil and in that moment was good. And in that moment of sin and temptation, they wanted to manifest what they were tricked into thinking was good. And what happened is it backfired. And so you look at verse 7 and what what it follows. And it talks about these beautiful verses and God's power through creation. What is the conclusion? That God is a good God. That he is good. And so we read Genesis 131. And God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. How? How is that? How can it be good? Because it was created by a good God. Only a good God could create something that is good. But here's the catch: here's the catch. Only a good God could create. Only good creates. That's it. Evil cannot create anything. And if evil had a mantra, it would be what we read in Nahum 2, verse 10. It would be destruction, devastation, and desolation. That, That right there is the ultimate motivation and conclusion of evil and what we say is bad, whether we want to see it or not, or whether we see it or not. Evil cannot create. It doesn't create. Yes, it can build up. It can, quote, create hatred and resentment. But what is that leading to? It leads to destruction. It leads to devastation and desolation. Evil could never have created this beautiful world that we live in. And an evil God would never have created this. A world run by those evil things could never have existed. And that is why for this world to exist, for life to happen, we have to have a good God. And it was a good God that created us. And so we have a job. The fight against evil. If we are good and we are his people, that means we have a responsibility to create. And that's, that's what God, he knew this. That's why he says, fill, and, fill the earth and subdue it. That's in Genesis one twenty-eight, And we can easily read that word subdue and think that, well, using evil as a force for progress. And that's not what he's saying. It's that God is telling us to do good, to make things To make relationships and connections and families and discoveries and adventures and stories. Because these things are good. And with goodness, these things become meaningful, eternal, and grow into something that is greater. That is a major part of our faith. Leading with the goodness of God, the goodness that he tells us and commands us to practice in our life. And that is what we see God pleading his people to do. Look at Nahum chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Nahum chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, talking about the Ninevites. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, very sarcastically. Watch the roads, dress for battle, collect all your strength. He's saying these efforts, they're meaningless. They're not going to stop the judgment that is coming for you. And yet how often... Do we act in our sin trying to hold on to these things, trying to stop this from happening, where we will guard and protect our sin because it makes us feel better when deep down we know why, at the end of that verse, why we are collecting all of our strength, because we're trying to make it through the pain that our sin causes us. And to Judah, he promises in verse 2, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The Lord is not just a good God, He is a just and restoring God. And only a good God can restore. Restoration cannot happen or cannot be accomplished by evil, by something that only destroys and leads to ruin. It cannot happen. Instead, out of the goodness of God's heart does he restore us, restoring us from the corruption of evil, from vain efforts, and the huge amount of violence betrayed by mankind. We were set out to define what is good. And goodness isn't what we find pleasing. It is what we find fulfilling, following God. How does God restore us? That is what I love about the Minor Prophets, is that there's always little nuggets where Jesus pops up and shows us how God can restore us. And it's God restores us through his son Jesus. And that's why I'm going to leave you with Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 21. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 21. This reminds us of who is good. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love the Lord with... Sorry, you shall love... I'm going off the top of my head. The lo- you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. And look at this, what do I still lack? Notice he still understands that he lacks something. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And when we read that, what we find is how much we need Jesus. How much we need God To be good. Because no matter how hard we try, we will fail every time. There is only one in verse 17, as Jesus says, that is good and that can make us good. And that is God. He is the one that gave us commandments to follow. Commandments that create and make things and make us grow in our faith. And so it's our job to follow and to keep those commandments. And to go ahead and to do good. That is the call I'm giving you this evening. Go and do good. Because we worship and live for a good God. And so we should go live for him. If we're not living for him, you can start right now. Don't let your efforts without God just go to nothing and ruin and be in vain. Instead, turn to Jesus and keep his commandments. One of which is to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. God is a good, loving God, slow to anger and quick to forgive. Accept that forgiveness. And if that is you, this evening. Come forward now and we stand and we sing.